Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show that's brought to you by The Athletic along with The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball along with Michael Normanson and Phil Hay here as well. Phil, hello from The Athletic, you're right? Hello, welcome back Premier League football. Indeed. Um, the Phil Hay Show returns to its twice weekly slot next week once we've got New Year out of the way. This is technically the, the Friday edition but we are in that strange week between Christmas and New Year where nobody quite knows what's going on. However, we will persist. Uh, just a quick heads up as well. You can subscribe to The Athletic right now for one of the best offers of the year, the Boxing Day sale that's on only until the 1st of January. Pound a month for your first 12 months. You get ad-free pods via the app and you get to read everything Phil writes. You can even converse with the man himself in the match day discussions. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for that. Phil, we are in. It's the morning after the night before and Leeds losing to, to Man City. I'm going to start you off with a question. Should we have expected more from Leeds last night than we got? Not in terms of the result. And some people were saying to me afterwards, it could have been worse. And I think it could have been in, in terms of the scoreline. I think it probably should have been worse in terms of the scoreline. They were they were very well beaten last night, Leeds. And I, I expected nothing from the game. Particularly, I did think City would win at Ellen Road. When we were looking at these two games back-to-back uh, on the last podcast, City and Newcastle, I said to you, is it unreasonable to say that anything from these two would be good? And you said, well, no, not really. You know, that's probably probably about right. And I think that's that's the case. It it was very, very comprehensive, though. And, I mean, you have to say, City are an incredibly accomplished team. I mean, when people talk about them as one of the best sides in the world, you can see it flowing through them. They, they very rarely panic. They don't stress when it takes them a while to get through as they did last night and yes you know 3-1 was nothing like the 7-0 hammering last season at the Etihad in terms of the scoreline or the 4-0 defeat at Ellen Road but City had more than 20 shots on goal the XG was running close to 5 it was a it was a hammering on the pitch really and it was only the strike header that kind of made them wobble for a little bit I don't doubt at all that had the the Gellhart chance gone in um, at 3-1 it would have caused some chaos in the way that we quite often see at Ellen Road. But Marsh said afterwards that he he felt like the way they played at 3-0 down, 2-0 down, 3-0 down was how they needed to play earlier in the game. Not as, I mean, at that point, they, they kind of, you know, it was like caution to the wind and they, they went for broke because they had no alternative. But he could see the same as us, that they were very careless in possession at 0-0, which meant that you were inviting wave after wave of attack. And I think if you do that against City, eventually they are going to get you, so they are going to get through, they are going to score. And, Watching Haaland last night, finished up with two goals, should probably have had four. He does this amazing thing of being almost invisible for quite a lot of the game. If you like, City had close to 70% possession last night, but they very rarely play to him. He doesn't touch the ball much. It's not as if everything is flowing through him in the way that it does, say, Kevin De Bruyne, who just seems to be on the ball constantly. But from nowhere, Haaland just, it's click of a finger and he's in and he's either scoring or he's, he's on the end of, of great chances. His goal stats are just absolutely unbelievable and I think one of the things that I noticed last night again and this isn't you know this isn't new but 
there is a, a lack of pace in that Leeds defence, which really hurts them in a game like that because City just had it all over the pitch, um, had it in abundance. And it, it really did feel like one of those games that was always going their way. What causes Premier League footballers to panic then in possession when they're playing at, at that level? And there are levels within the Premier League, as we saw last night, that they're at the very apex of it, aren't they, Man City? But Leeds looked terrified of that football. It, it dropped in the area and it was just a boot to anywhere. And as you say, it just invites more uh, attacking from Man City then, doesn't it? We didn't give ourselves an outlet, it didn't feel like. But but why does that happen? I think it's the fear of what they're going to do to you. And what the fear of what they're going to do to you, if you commit high up the pitch, um, if you get caught in their half, that certainly seemed to be what was happening or, or what we were seeing um, in the football leads were playing. It, the inability to string together sequences of passes meant that it was just wave after wave of, of City attacks. And they will get through eventually as they were as they were always going to. Marsh said that you know he thought Leeds were stable in the first half and, and okay, very nearly made it to halftime with the game goalless. But there were a lot of chances in that period. The, the, it, a lot of last-ditch moments. Grealish missing one sitter in particular, but a couple of chances that he, he should probably have scored beyond that. And I think if he had, the, the atmosphere would have been very different. I think the reaction of the crowd would have been very different. People seem to appreciate the fact that you know they'd, they'd kept City out for 45 minutes, despite the fact that it hadn't been a particularly even game. But it did just feel like one goal was going to go in eventually, one was going to lead to two or three. And... You know, but for that, but for that strike header, just making City think for a, a little moment, um, it would have been a very, very easy night for them. I still think when they look back on it, City and Guardiola, they'll feel like it was an easy night. It brings up the question of should Leeds have been more ambitious, which is kind of what I was getting at with the question earlier. Yeah. Do we? Do we? Should we have expected more? I mean, would you like to have seen us be more ambitious against Man City and potentially risk another massive pasting? I don't think there's any way we could have won that game. Is the is the honest answer to that? I agree. Yeah. I don't think there was, with the players we had available, because we are still missing a few key players and a a left-back, which is more of a recruitment issue than anything else. But I didn't see a way we could have set up to win that game. But then again, I suppose Man City haven't won every game this year, have they? I mean, Brentford beat them in the most recent game. So there are ways to beat them. Uh, We just haven't shown any sign of being able to do it. I think the way we we started in that first half, we basically didn't have any possession. And any possession we did have was in our own half. There was absolutely no threat whatsoever. I think Nonto got forward once and had a shot that was blocked. I went over or something. I can't even fully remember because it, it was not even a chance. There was nothing at all. And I think we've seen the problem all season that there's a disconnect between defence to midfield to attack. That transition between them, we don't seem able to really build up anymore in the same in the way we used to under Bielsa. Just to ring that, ring that bell. But... Um, I don't know, it feels like we're a bit lost when we, when I, we have position. I should position put now. my Buckfast hoodie on that you bought me. <laughs> yeah, for Christmas, I should have put that on as soon as, as, soon as that was said. But like, I, I, don't, I, I don't feel like there's, in games where we are expected to win, or games like last night where we're not expected to win, I still don't feel there's, there's always much of a, a plan going forward. It feels like goals we score just kind of happen. One of the difficulties last night was that if your tactics are based on pressing and counter-pressing, but you're in your own half as City swarm forward and you're not really pressing them too much um, deep in their half, then the, the chances that you hope to create or the methods by which you hope to create them aren't likely to pay off. There was that point, there was a, a quite interesting exchange midway through the first half where Leeds were kind of pressing like mad round about City's box and in City's box and, and City played their way out as they, as they tend to do and, and are, are talented enough to do. But there wasn't an awful lot of that. It wasn't as if City were having to take massive risks at the back um, in order to to play their own game. Brentford did beat City back in November, but Brentford gave up almost thirty shots on goal. You know, in in that game, 
Um, City dominated that and City, City were on top for most of it. But what happened was that Brentford were able to resist and able to resist. And because of the way the league table is, because Arsenal are doing so well and City are not running away with it, they're not in control of the, the title race at the moment. They're having to play to win every game right up to the very end of it. So Brentford had the, the scenario where City were right on top of them deep into injury time. And the opportunity presented itself to counter-attack, which they did. And Ivan Tony picks City off and, and they win the game. I think that these days is probably your most likely route of getting anything from, from City is to, to manage the game like that and to essentially be deadly when the, the chances come. But if you, if you fall 3-0 behind, you're not going to get anything against them. And I do feel, looking at the defence, Leeds' defence, that they're giving up far too much at the moment. They are. I, I, like Michael says, I didn't fancy them to win last night. I thought City would score a few goals. I thought it would be one-sided and, and was likely to be to be dominant in City's favour because of the team that they are. But so many opportunities and so many ch- so many good chances. And Melia made several saves from moments where, where Haaland in particular might have scored when he was he was cleaned through. And even as early as, you know, like 40 seconds, you've got strike hooking the ball away from, from in front of the goal line. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't going to deliver anything last night. I think you look at the starting midfield as well, and with all respect to them both, because Greenwood is just starting out and Forshaw is obviously perpetually returning from injury. Greenwood and Forshaw was not a midfield that you would pick, given a, full, a fully available team, is it? No, I, there were some nice touches from Forshaw in, in the first half, but... Again, you, on paper, you expected that mid, midfield to struggle against cities. And, and you also have March switching more now to, to 4-3-3 um, as opposed to the 4-2-3-1 that was there before the World Cup break. And I think ideally, if you're going to make that sort of tactical switch, you want everybody available. So that you know, the glaring omission last night was Tyler Adams in that midfield. You know, the sort of performance you were getting from him in the World Cup games where he was just... You know, it was like constant aggressive presence there. And okay, didn't work great against the Dutch, but in other games, he he was one of one of the USA's standout players. You absolutely need people like him for that game. It's it's a definite bonus that he'll be back for for Newcastle at the weekend because again, that's going to be another really difficult fixture. But no, I I agree with you. I think it's asking a hell of a lot of uh, you know of put together a midfield of um, of Rocker, Forshaw, and and Greenwood. It's asking a lot of them to to dominate City. And I thought Rocker. When it came to his passing and distribution, at a particularly difficult night last night. Just going back a bit further in the ranks and to the defence, you mentioned the pace in defence or lack thereof. That doesn't even begin to touch on Cooper to cock that pass for the goal. And what on earth is going on between them there? Because what seemed like a simple pass, it just collapsed spectacularly, didn't it? Cock moving away from the ball when it's moving towards him. Was it Greeley should just nipped into the yeah. gap and took it off his toe? I mean, it's so I mean, it's proper. Schoolboy level stuff that you had to watch it back to try and make a decision about whose fault that was. Cog just seemed to get caught on his heels completely, uh, but when you watched it again, you wondered was it a really sensible pass to to play? But also, Cog didn't seem out of his you know his, his kind of eyeline to to see Grealish coming, even though everybody in the ground he, he felt that sudden surge of well Grealish is going to go through here, and I mean it was again really really simple goal. And there was a bit of talk about the, the errors afterwards, the fact that the mistakes had, had helped City. But I still don't think it was a game that came down to mistakes particularly. It was a game that came down to the fact that Leeds just could not contain City in those moments where, where City really clicked. But yeah, it was it was a bad error. And the piece I wrote um, after the Tottenham game was basically focused on the fact that defensively, the, the record at Leeds is, is getting poorer and poorer and is 
not in any way flattering. And actually, it doesn't seem to me to be much more flattering than it was at the point where they were conceding heavily under Bielsa. Okay, they haven't had, you know, your 7-0 defeat they had at the Etihad and there was 6-0 at Anfield and, and everything else. But the goals are piling up. They really are. And I still don't feel like they've got a back four there, which you look at and say, yeah, I totally agree with the picks right the, the way across. I, I think forever with strike, you're going to have the issue of him not having the pace that you'd want a fullback to have and him looking like he would rather be playing in a more inverted role, i.e. left side of uh, of the two centre-back, uh, the two centre-backs or the centre-back pair. He would rather be there than he would be um, at left-back. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like the balance is right there. Well, on the goals piling up, the ever-excellent Johnny Cooper, who is at Cooper 26 on Twitter, he does stats for Opta. Uh, Johnny has tweeted this morning, Thursday morning, saying Leeds are now guaranteed to be the first team to play a full year in the top flight and concede at least two goals per game on average. First team to do that for 38 years. We will finish the year on at least 72 in 36 games. That's not great, is it? And we're giving them new contracts, Phil. Your article post the Man City game leads off on the fact that not only are we uh, giving out contracts to Urente, Cox getting one as well. It's um, one, it seems to be one in the pipeline for, for him. I like Robin Cock. I do think he's a good player. I think there's good potential there. I don't feel as if he's ever properly been able to settle and to find, you know, as part of an established partnership there where he is he plays game after game after game because injury doesn't intervene, although it hasn't been a problem for him as much this season. Yorente, it's not to say that Yorente will necessarily be here until the end of his contract, but this contract does run to the point of, of him being 33. And there was a definite difference between the reaction to Stroik signing a, a new deal, which made total sense because you're talking about a 23-year-old who's been on a you know a steady upward curve, seems to have plenty to offer into the Netherlands squad, protecting your asset there. And the reaction to Yorente signing his contract, which I think the general feeling was, has Yorente played well enough? for us to be committing to him for another three and a half years. And I totally see the argument there. I'm not I'm not convinced that that he has. It seems like it's been a long time since he was he had a starting place nailed down. He seems to swing between periods where he looks settled and periods where he looks pretty exposed. But they you know it's not that they don't want to do anything to the defence, but they are definitely, you know, standing by the the players and, and the crop that they have there. You know, Cooper goes to 2024 um, Strike now to 2027, you're into 2026. Cox will obviously fall into line as and when that happens. But I still worry that the defence as it is at the moment, you know, isn't right. But Marsh has gone all in on Christensen on, on the right-hand side and I think it's been quite a difficult season for him. You know, I, I think it's been quite a big adjustment from the Austrian Bundesliga. So yeah, I, I, I can see why people are a little bit confused about that. But one of the, one of the, thought process behind it one of the reasons behind it is that leads are of the view that as the transfer market develops over the next few years centre-backs are going to become more and more coveted and are going to become more and more expensive and actually there's wisdom in backing the ones that you have in consolidating the ones that you have at, at keeping hold of them and I think they still look at Llorente and think he's on the fringes of the Spain squad there's been a change of head coach with Spain, if he gets back in there, it, it enhances his reputation and there might actually be some resale value in him further down the line. But I mean, time will tell with that. There's a lot of if and supposition there, though, of course, isn't there? Of course there is. And, you know, th- I look at the right side of the defence and I think, you know, it, it feels as if everybody has decided that 
in the pecking order for right-sided centre-back, Robin Koch is the one. It's quite hard to argue with that. I think that, you know, he's certainly the player I would pick there. Amash has definitely opted for Christensen over Ailing. We were chatting about Drame last night, about, you know, what's going to happen with him. And again, Marsh was kind of saying he wants minutes. You know, that's what he wants. He wants to play. He wants, um, he wants to be in the team. But, you know, he wasn't in the squad last night because Ailing was in the squad instead. So that's kind of three trying to fit into one position. But Marsh very much going with Christensen. So on the right-hand side, it, it feels like it's picking itself, um, certainly in, in his head. On the other side, Cooper has really not been helped at all by fitness. Aside from, you know, take out form and mistakes and everything else, has not been helped by fitness this season. You know, I missed a lot of pre-season, had a calf strain leading up to last night's game, but was was fit to play. And then you've got Strike at left-back, who can be a safe pair of hands, but it feels as if he's been played there because there's nobody else that leads Trustmore or Marsh Trustmore. There's, they don't have an out-and-out left-back that they feel happy to use there or can use there, because Firpo too, again, putting form to one side, isn't fit that often, isn't available as often as you'd, you'd want him to be. So a lot of ifs, and I do think it's an area of the team which at the start of the season, we spoke a lot about left-back, but in the early games, there wasn't really a massive focus on the defence. It seemed to be coping okay, but as time's gone on, it's become more and more of a concern. What do we actually know of the Urenta deal? Because I found the main reaction to it was people being either annoyed by it or trying to make sense of it in some way, saying maybe it's a wage cut, but over a longer period, maybe it's some sort of an accounting thing because it means his transfer doesn't need to be value doesn't need to be written off yet or something like that. Do we know anything about the structure of it? There's none of that being said. When when we've asked about centre backs, it's it's all been this idea that centre backs are going to become expensive commodities. Um, and if you have it on your books, centre backs that you feel are are worth keeping um, or worth investing in then you should but ultimately people's perception of centre-backs comes down to form and comes down to the way they play I don't think this is purely on them you know the, the concession of goals there are times when the pressing in front of them doesn't work effectively enough there are times when the midfield don't provide enough of a shield but there are too many goals I mean Johnny Cooper's stat is extraordinary one really but it, it marries up perfectly with, with this season which is 15 games, 15 Premier League games, 29 goals conceded. It is basically two goals a game. And for as long as you've got that sort of record against you, and there aren't many worse in the the division at the moment, it's going to hamper you. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We spoke on last week's show, Phil, about the potential impending takeover of the 49ers. You said on last week's show, it felt a little bit like we were just waiting for the white smoke now because there's plenty rumbling along in the background. We've had a little bit more to flesh out the picture this week. Um, The interview that Radozani did in Italy um, in the newspaper, and you can say this probably better than I can. Corriere della Sera. That's exactly what I was going to say. Written by uh, journalist Andrea Rinaldi. Indeed, saying that he understands that more investment is needed in Leeds United to give you the potted version. Marsh talked about it last night in his post-match, saying that this was an interview done, or so Andrea told him, some months previous. Where are we with, with all this? It feels like the communication around this is starting to get a little bit messy. Just a just a little bit unclear. Actually, with Radrazani, it's perfectly apparent that some of his PR, some of what he tweets, some of what he says, riles people, aggravates people, 
can can cause conflict from time to time. I think if we're being fair, what was in this piece was pretty lucid and actually it was pretty realistic about what does need to happen at Leeds. Almost an acceptance of the fact that the money he has isn't going to be enough to push Leeds beyond the level that they're at at the moment. The quote in this, um, if people haven't seen it, was maybe Leeds can still grow, but in the future they will need more resources to be able to reach higher levels and compete with the best clubs in the Premier League. So I believe that because of the club's history and the respect I have for the fans, it is right to let those who can invest more than me go ahead and take it um, to the glory of the past. It's definitely the case in the Premier League that you need more money than Leeds have to compete at a higher level than Leeds are at. And it's quite worryingly, it's starting to get to the stage where in order to be a club that qualifies regularly for Europe or certainly for the Champions League, you feel as if you need the funding of billionaires who are close to the next step, trillionaires, whatever it is, or nation states who have inordinate amounts of wealth that you can just throw at it without even having to having to blink. Leeds don't have that. Leeds have never had that in the Championship. They went way beyond the levels of the levels of expenditure that they'd had previously in that division and made big losses because of it. You know, that was that was kind of how it was done. They put up the money as they, they felt it was needed, but it wasn't as if there was so much cash that it was just sloshing about waiting to be used. You know, they, they, they did make losses um, in that, that period and it worked in the end. They, they, they got promoted. But in order to go from here, they need a new stadium. And as, as even a basic starting point, that is going to require a huge amount of cash, huge amount of um, equity and, and investment to make it happen. They do, I think, without any doubt, need to start moving to the next level of finance when it comes to the transfers that they're making, move into the next bracket to allow themselves to compete. And what Radrazani seemed to be saying in this interview, and Marsh did say last night that, that Radrazani told him it was done a, a while back, Regardless of the timing, what he seems to be saying in this, I think, is what a lot of people at Leeds are thinking. Um, and I'm sure what, what we are thinking as well, that there does need to be a transition to, to different ownership and that the time is probably nigh for that. And it was really, I think, a hint to the fact that, yes, the 49ers are in the wings and this is going to happen at some stage. One thing perhaps to clear up in, in this interview is that Radrazani has spoken about the partnership with the 49ers coming to an end at Leeds. And it could be interpreted in in one of two ways. Either he's selling up to the 49ers or him and the 49ers are done at Ellen Road. It's the 49ers taking over from him at it's Ellen Road. It's the former, it? yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's what's in the pipeline and, and that's what we're we're all waiting for. It's just a matter of timing really and, and when it's when it's going to happen. But again, they're, they're in an odd situation at the moment that they're midway through a season that is far from guaranteed to, to yield another season in the Premier League. I mean, Leeds actually, uh, the uh, you know one or two consistent months would would see them right. You know there are some other teams who are struggling badly in the division, and by no means is it is it desperate. But I think if you were looking at this as an investment, you would have to be asking yourself, you know, where are we going to end up when this season finishes? What, what are we going to be looking at next season? Um, is it going to be a Premier League club? Is it going to be an EFL club? There has to be a little bit of care taken. But this is probably the first time I think that Radrazani has kind of said openly look, my, my time here is almost done. There was a, another quote from him, which was, um, there is also a planning aspect. This is my sixth year, change is healthy. Um, I think a lot of people who would agree with that and think that that's the, um, that's the right, way, right way to go. Um, but still, you know, we're talking about white smoke last week, still waiting for some indication of when this will actually proceed. Given he's spoken about the need for more investment, how certain are we that that's what the 49ers are going to do? Because we don't, 
we don't really know what they bring as as sole owners, do we? For them to speak openly and on the record, um, we'll need to, to wait a while yet. Everybody around it in, is indicating that the stadium will be a massive part of what happens when they when they arrive. You know, that developing it will be one of the major steps forward and has to be in a commercial sense. Leeds, Leeds can't compete and can't progress, particularly with a stadium with a capacity of 36,000 and which is as old as Elland Road is. You know, the, the mod cons, you, you, you'll have noticed that, you know, some of the, the broadcast coverage from Amazon and few people will be watching NBC Sports in, in America, but, but them as well, it, it's kind of broadening out what they want to do and how they, they want to do the coverage. So you have managers speaking beforehand, which doesn't tend to happen in, in the way that they do it. You know, this kind of roundtable discussion. And um, that's never really been the case previously. That There is, I think, a wish for cameras in the dressing room and all that sort of stuff. The older stadiums actually make that sort of thing more difficult. You know, these broadcasters are looking for more and more advanced grounds. There's more that you can do with advanced venues um, when you have them. And they earn you more money, you know, commercially and in corporate sense, they earn you more cash. So that, that will be an absolute pillar of what the 49ers um, want to do. When it comes to investment in the team, that's a question for them. And the proof will be in the pudding. You know, we will see soon enough when the 49ers buy in, what they start doing in various transfer windows, what is different to the strategy that we have at the moment. I think one thing that's worth saying about this interview is that it wasn't specifically about Leeds. It was actually, it was in the, it seemed to be in the um, economy section of um, Correa de la Serra's website. It touched a lot on, you know, things like this, the sale of the living sports to the zone Radrazani's investment vehicle, Acer, about where that might go, what they might do, um, about the possibility of investments in other football clubs. Um, Radrazani was talking about sides in Italy, um, especially, and we know that he's looked at, at various clubs over there. So this wasn't purely about, you know, I'm about to sell Leeds, but it was certainly in the in the thick of it. And as I say, I, I think it's probably as candid as he's ever been about the fact that it this is starting to reach a, a natural conclusion. I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I find that the, I guess the prominence of the stadium discussions a little bit, they leave me a bit cold. It feels a bit like Ken Bates on speed. If that's the kind of the main <laughs> thing they're going to they're just talk about is, is just but fans. I know it's important and I know it's obviously part of growing the team, but saying I don't know, the idea that it can basically start to create a better television and corporate experience. That, that, for, for your average it, fan, it's kind of, it's not really what you want to hear. No, that that's that's me just sort of thinking out loud and and watching some of what had been going on at Ellen Road last night, and also the difference with Amazon. You know, it, it is you are now talking about um, TV companies who will try more and more to exploit the corporate opportunities that you and commercial opportunities that clubs present and that club stadiums present. This is a legacy of a few things: legacy of the way football has changed and the fact that money is just absolutely everything now. Um, and if you have it, you can compete, as we're seeing with our next opponents. If you don't have it, then it's a, it's a real struggle. It's also a legacy of the fact that the stadium has barely changed in the past 20, 30 years. You had the redevelopment of the East Stand, but actually I think I'm right in saying that it brought the capacity down rather than up. And yes, it did create new commercial facilities, corporate facilities, and it, it added, and it added hugely to the architectural beauty of it, South Leeds. It absolutely did, yeah. Beast, what Beeston was, <laughs> Beeston was needing. But it's essentially the same ground, isn't it? It's the yeah. same ground as you've known for years and years. So whereas, I mean, when we went to, to Anfield um, in, in October, the main stand has obviously been redeveloped in a massive, massive way. And when you get into it, it's, you know, it's 
very, very advanced and it's very, very modern. But there were also the huge iron girders over the Anfield Road end because that's next for them. You know, they, they've done the main stand, they've hiked the, the capacity up, but they're going further again. And you've had other clubs who've built new venues, new stadiums. Um, you have clubs who have vastly more advanced facilities than Leeds. Leeds have been Leeds have been stuck in the EFL where they didn't have any money. And then when it came to the crunch of getting promoted under Bielsa, the money kind of had to go on the, the team and coaching staff you know that that process of, of the team being the key thing but again the stadium hasn't changed and at some point you have to bite the bullet you have to put money towards it and unless like I keep saying you have endless amounts of wealth you've got to pick your battles haven't you you've got to decide what the, the money's going into and I think I totally understand what you're saying you know I, with a football club that you support you look for the team don't you you look for the team and you look for the performance but I don't think one's going to come without the other well, this is the thing, isn't it? That ultimately, from a fan's perspective, Leeds United and this part of the table don't make comfortable bedfellows at not all. Not just for Leeds. No, it's not for, for any club, but I think for Leeds in particular, and maybe it's just a quirk of our recent history, the, the fact that you know just over 20 years ago, we're in the Champions League and then saw this spectacular fall and we've sort of clawed our way back out of it. That's carried with it so much uh, emotional heft and... Uh, it's a bit of a millstone around the neck, isn't it, in many ways? And, and the, the size of the club and the potential of the club is such that it can't mill around where it is right now for too long. I think when you contrast with a club such as, for example, Norwich, who have almost, to a certain extent, accepted their lot as a yo-yo club and are happy to enjoy a nice year in the championship where they go up and then they go down, and then a nice year in the championship when they go up. And, and that's not to say the fans enjoy the bits where they go down, but it just doesn't sit that well with Leeds as a club who, and I'm not trying to be exceptionalist there no, 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 no yeah. but who who are the club that have done what what Leeds really need to do or or have um, have found what Leeds could do with finding Brighton Brentford has done it as well it's Newcastle Newcastle are the club oh, find a billionaire, yes <laughs> Newcastle are the club with a huge underwhelmed supporter base big, big stadium the, the feeling that they should amount to so much more than they've been able to and the reason they're now in the mix is because they're incredibly rich. Sovereign wealth. Yeah. yeah. Um, or not as so, the case may be. So that for that, but actually, if you go to Newcastle's training ground, nothing special about it at all. Um, or at least certainly hasn't been the, the times that, that I've seen it. It's not a state-of-the-art, you know, up-to-date training ground. That's the sort of thing that they'll have to throw money at because, or, or you would think they would throw money at because it hasn't, you know, it is behind the level of, of other clubs. Um you get into the discussion really, don't you, about whether you would want to be state-owned. I know there's, I know there's a, a constant argument about are Newcastle state-owned, but the money's coming coming from Saudi. There seems to be Can I just a say, lot of it. I'd like to be state-owned by Norway because they're not having to sports wash their reputation. They've got a huge sovereign wealth fund. We've got connections to Norway as it is. It's a great shout. Let's, a great let's, shout. Let's, Why not? Let's get it done. Why not? <laughs> the legitimate face of massive money. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that would be... Nice uh, nice sovereign wealth. It yeah. can be done. Yeah. Prime Minister's no. a Leeds fan, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the Prime Minister is a Leeds fan. Abso- absolutely right. Come but, on, Norway. <laughs> you, like I like say, when, when Newcastle last came to Ellen Road, they looked like they were getting relegated. Oh, um, you've, done, you've done stats on this, haven't you? Yeah. Or you, or you pulled well, the stat? I, I was going to say this for part three, but since we're, uh, since we're here, we might as well just get into it. When they came to Ellen Road last January, they had 12 points. And they looked like they were going down. They looked in a lot of trouble. Since then, they've taken 70 points from 34 games and are now third in the Premier League. Okay, that's over over two different seasons, but, you know, that's the, the form. Leeds have taken 31 in that same period, um, albeit from one game fewer. But, you know, give or take, there's a massive disparity there. And 
I think that's partly because Eddie Howe has done really good things with the team. It's also because they've been able to spend at a different level and at a different part of the market and have signed some some really, really good players. See, one of the one of the issues I think it leads at the moment is that everything kind of feels a bit transitional and everybody's waiting to see what the club will look like when we get to the point where the things that are being promised or the things that look like they're coming have been delivered. And you almost want to just jump there now, don't you? You you want to be able to jump to the point where there's a 60,000 seater stadium and it's just done and you know you start to get the benefit of it. And you want to jump to the point where your average signing is costing, say, 35, 40 million rather than 20, 25 and you're moving up a level. Um, it's hard to... It's hard to be patient with it and I don't think it helps patience levels when it's as much of a struggle as it has been over the past 12 to 18 months on that, the pitch. That said though, I mentioned Brentford in passing there. Yeah. They've got nowhere near like the resources we've got and look at what they're doing. I mean, you could argue maybe they're still riding the wave of promotion but no matter what you think of Thomas Frank's you know, gum-chewing habits, he's coaching them very, very well and they've recruited exceptionally well as well. So that kind of subverts the idea that it has to be all about money, doesn't it? Oh, they're... they're um, their project has been absolutely fantastic. And you mentioned Brighton, and I think the same um, about Brighton as well. But we should reconvene about Brentford in another three or four years and see whether they're still going in the direction that they're going or whether it's it's all gone backwards. Because the question I would ask is, if Brentford need to push on to the next level and if they need to find something else to help them, how easy is it going to be for them to do that? Um, or they, will they kind of gravitate back towards the mean and find themselves back in the championship at some point. I mean, I'm not throwing stones here because Leeds have been much closer to dropping back into the championship um, last season and as it stands this season as well than, than Brentford have been. But there, you know, the recruitment at Brentford has been absolutely brilliant in the main. And yeah, they're, they're in, in really, really good shape. But I think Newcastle are a much better comparison because Newcastle had so much more weight on their shoulders. There was so much. That's why when... You remember when we went to um, St. James's last season for the one-all draw and the, the atmosphere there and the, the attitude towards Bruce and the to- and Mike Ashley, the total poison all around the place. I can't imagine the point where you would get that with Brentford because Brentford, Brentford don't have that kind of long historical feeling of being, of, of being underwhelmed and under-delivered. Whereas at Newcastle, they've spent years and years saying, like, we can't even win a trophy. You know, we we went on a trophy for half a century or or more, and, but suddenly they're in but the mix for the League it? Cup. Well, and I was going to say, well, with Brentford, if you've never if you've never won a trophy, then it's not a problem, is it? It's mad, isn't it? How your history weighs down on you like yeah, that. Yeah, it does. It does. And and I I've always felt that more at Leeds than anywhere else. And and I kind of feel that when pressure comes to bear on clubs, um, it bears probably more heavily here than it does in most places. You feel it. You know, the tension tension kind of kind of grows. But I think. When I look back now over the last sort of 18 months and the way the team has struggled, the way it's deteriorated, I think what was really needed was not to gatecrash Europe, not to get into the Europa League, not to start you know banging on the door of the top six and causing this, this massive surprise. It was to become really steady, to become a little bit safe and steady so that you kind of knew where you were and you knew what was, what was happening. And that doesn't feel how it is at the moment. And it, it's kind of left them in a fair amount of fair amount of peril. They're going to need a good second half of the season to make sure that they're, they're okay because they don't have much breathing space. It was put to me last night, um, just returning to the ground for a second, by somebody who knows more about these things than I do, that if you're unemotional and you strip out the fan side of things and the, the millstone around the neck, that Leeds is a Premier League city with a Premier League support base 
and Premier League history, but it's not a Premier League stadium. That's right. Yeah. It, it, it's a Premier League stadium in as much as 36,000 is a kind of good capacity at that level, but it's in no way modern. You know, if you if you go from say the Etihad to and Etihad's probably a bad example because because of the the money that's been able to to fund that. But from a lot of venues now, you go to and and they're so much more advanced than Ellen Road because Ellen Road hasn't really been touched not in a not in a major way. So that does need to happen. It absolutely, does need to happen. It'll be it'll be sexy for people when they go into the ground when it's been done and it's finished and you say. I mean, I personally will miss the old Ellen Road. I will, um, but. I get it. I get why it, it has to happen. I think most people do. But there will be that element of walking into it going, wow, this is absolutely amazing. In the meantime, the drawings, the architectural drawings, the kind of, um, you know, the building works when they start and so on. It's not the same as having a team who are absolutely flying um, and, and are kind of revving your boat up every week. But it, it does have to happen. It does have to happen. I don't think anybody going to Ellen Road could look at that and say it's it's one of the commercially one of the best grounds in the division I happen to think it is the best ground in the division but that's a totally different discussion and on to Newcastle then Tyneside New Year's Eve closing out 2022 with a difficult fixture up there dare I trot out the uh, the old Moylan cliche of saying we've always got one of these in us or you're not believing it are you, no don't this may be maybe this is the time maybe this is the time my in-laws are Newcastle fans I say this all the time so it would be it would be a good moment for that yeah I mean I, I do have a lot of connections back to Newcastle and it would just be nice to think we could go into do they have do they have photos of you at Metro Radio <laughs> well, signed well that's it I just I just like to not get a barrage of, of texts you know in the wake of, <laughs> of a defeat saying oh your lads are in trouble aren't you we got into this with Marsh last night clearly there is a benefit to Newcastle in this game of them having had 48 hours extra to recover and one of the things about the defeat to City was that because City had so much of the ball, Leeds did a hell of a lot of running last night, cover cover a lot of distance. So they're going to have to recover well. Uh, they've got Tyler Adams back, who will be pretty fresh. Um, Marsh kind of hinted quite strongly that Harrison and Somerville, who who weren't used last night, weren't rest, would probably come into the equation, and that you know he would mix things up. I think he's absolutely going to have to. They're a good team, Newcastle. They're a good, strong team. They've got. They've got a lot, of, a lot of decent players. It's come together nicely. They're on a right old run of form. I can't see them winning the title. Marsh asked that last night, um, and you know, kind of said there's other teams in in the mix. It, it would surprise me a lot if they did, but I think top four finish is very, very realistic for them. The way they're going with Harrison and Somerville coming back, who gets dropped then? Because you would have said probably Nonto was the one drafted in to cover for them, but. He since has become our best player. Like, these this little group of friendlies in the city game. Yeah, uh, I don't know if say Rodrigo drops out or perhaps Aronson gets a, a bit of a rest. I think it would make sense to me with um, Adams going back into the midfield that he replaces one of Forshaw um, or Greenwood. I think you keep rocking the team, even though he had a bad night last night. I think you you kind of need him and Adams paired up. And I would imagine Marsh will probably go four three three again, given that that's the the way that Newcastle play as well. But yeah, decisions to be made there. It doesn't look as if Bamford will. He wasn't involved last night. Doesn't look as if he'll be involved in in this game either. But I don't think they can risk going with the the same eleven because there will be there will definitely be tired legs in the camp. And Newcastle, in theory, should be fresher. Will we have a forward to compete with the uh, unavailable Patrick Bamford at any point soon? It does bring us on to transfers because the window opens in a couple of days doesn't it 
Um, yes. Still, just the other side. Of the, you said that with a bit of trepidation in your I voice. Well, I know, no, I know you don't that's, like that. that's, that's certainly what they, they've said that they're looking to do. Well, it's Fabrizio Romano, just to touch on this first of all, who reported earlier this week about Max Verber, who's the, well, he's left back at RB Salzburg at the moment, um, but is kind of, certainly was previously renowned more as a left-sided centre-back, um, but has been playing on the left side of a back four for um, for Salzburg. That looks like a, a, a very strong chance of, of happening, that one. He's 24, so a good age. I think I would be happier to see a sort of out-and-out left-back coming in. That said, perhaps some attention on um, the centre of defence isn't a, isn't a bad thing either. It's been quiet on the striker front, but I mean, I, I just... The, the question keeps coming back to Mars really about how much he can rely on Bamford and he seems totally convinced that Bamford will get back to 100% and will get going when? again. When? But that's that's the problem, isn't it? It's now, um, it's now January, Phil. You don't have the luxury in the position, the league position leads are in, you know, to be without regular goals, to be without regular nine. I mean, it's funny because at the moment in the system, the nine has become Brendan Aronson. You know, it's not even Rodrigo who's playing in that position. It's Aronson in a slightly more withdrawn, if you want to call it a false nine, as the kids do. You know, that kind of kind of role. But that itself is a bit of a shift away from what was happening um, in the first half of the season. But I, I in no way changed my mind in thinking that, yeah, they need a, they need a forward. Just returning to the question of the ownership, it, it says a lot about the state of mind of the fans and, and what's happened over the last couple of years, that there seems to be very, very little faith among the fan base in them delivering what we need to see happening in January, despite all the noises suggesting that they're they're going to try and address these positions. I think that's what has to change, isn't it? That's what it needs to, they need a month in which they do the right things for people to say, okay, you know, the kind of problems are there, problems are, are sticking out. So address them in the way that it wasn't, um, wasn't a year ago. I feel as if, if they don't they're kind of asking for a really difficult second half of the season which is not going to be good for anybody I still think realistically they're probably going to be moving in the same sort of ballpark when it comes to fees and everything else but you know it's it, it's got to be done hasn't it if you're protecting your asset and you're trying to stay in the division you've, you've got to you've got to see what's in front of your eyes Do you think they'll do it? Do you think they'll do what's necessary this month? Or, or are we still it feels like what's underpinning this is that we, it feels like we're always almost living hand to mouth Every window, last you know, the summer window, we, we sold our two biggest assets in order to fund the business. Uh, you know, the, the, bot- the first time they'd done that, though, I think that's important to say. Yeah, and I was going to say about the board. I say from Chris Wood, sorry, if you go a little bit further back. Yeah, and the board have directed us, you know, they've stayed as, as, as Kinnear put in his programme notes, like, look at the three year spend. Yeah, yeah. The problem is, people will disregard that because it doesn't really matter what's happened over the last three years. If nope. you are floating around the plug hole, you know, gurgling around there at the bottom of the table. No, absolutely. They'll say, just go out there and do... Because football fans, we're never satisfied, are we? We always want next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Um, but there is a legitimate... Uh, there definitely is. ...call and, for it. Uh, so to go back to what you were saying about Norwich, you know, Norwich kind of accepting, if that's the right word, this, uh, this position of being a yo-yo club, so bounce between the Premier League and the Championship. If you get into trouble, but you have a budget that you're sticking to, and you have a squad size that you're sticking to and a framework that you're sticking to, and you're saying, look, if if this costs us relegation, then that's what we'll accept because next year we'll try and get promoted again and, and we're happy in, to, to exist like that, then that's fine. But nobody at Ellen Road would ever pretend that relegation could be good for them, that relegation would be acceptable. 
that it wouldn't come with, with really, really big consequences. And on that basis, you want to mitigate against it as much as you possibly can. And, you know, they, they're not actually struggling for goals this season. They're scoring a hell of a lot more, go- lot more goals than the teams that are around them um, at the bottom of the league. But I still think that there is scope there, particularly because we still have no idea how much we can rely on Bamford this season. There is still scope and the call for another forward to be to be added. And I personally feel like it needs to be a nine. It needs to be a goal scorer. I know Leeds are big on you know, versatile players who can play here and there, but I think it, it, when I look at that team, they are looking for somebody through the middle um, who can, you know, who can do damage. I mean, I'm, I'm not being funny and I'm not suggesting that Haaland is somebody Leeds should have been going for, but Guardiola doesn't play him in midfield or, or play him out wide. He plays him up front. You know, he's, he's a nine. He scores goals. He, that's what he, that's what he does. And I think, I do think Leeds could do with something, could do with somebody who is in that, you know, in that mindset of high score goals. It's interesting that you do bring up the goals scored because what is it now? We've done 23. And I, again, I'm, I'm loath to fall back on previous do you, know, do you know another absolutely mad stat is but, that Haaland has outscored nine clubs in the Premier League <laughs> on his own. It's absolutely ridiculous. But I was going to say, I was going to go back to the old... Um, each goal scored generally equates to a point. So that's what does give me a little bit of hope that we're probably underperforming a little bit. We're either overscoring yeah. or we're underperforming points-wise and hopefully it'll level itself out over the course of the season. That's what I hope. Uh, I've had I quite hope. a lot of that people messaging me saying the XG4 versus the XG against um, falls into positive number. Therefore, you know, leads should be a little bit higher up the table. They should have taken more points than they have. Actually, it's got to the point now where your XG against is higher than... Um, XG4 so they are they are kind of in, in the negative the thing we shouldn't forget is that there are other teams in the division who are struggling and look like they're, they're going to toil Southampton feels to me like it's been a long time coming for Southampton and 12 points from 16 games they are they are in massive danger and I, I can't decide in all honesty whether Nathan Jones is somebody who's going to get them out of that Everton seem to be having the season that they had last season and Actually, the, the Boxing Day results were pretty good for Leeds. The one exception to that being Wolves picking up that really late win at Goodison. But I do think that turns the screw on Lampard and Everton, which can't, you know, from Leeds' perspective, can't be a bad thing. But I think last, you know, everybody said at the end of last season, that is, you know, you've had one year of hoping that everybody else drops points here and there. One year of that is enough. You know, they, they just don't want to be going into March, April, you know, again, treading water desperately trying to claw points to, to keep themselves clear. Don't want to be in another relegation fight. I think the good thing with Everton and Southampton, I can't see them doing a huge amount in the window themselves either because it doesn't feel like they're particularly cash-rich at the moment. So that... Oh, absolutely. Uh, Everton, I mean, Everton, cash rich, Everton no. are very skint, aren't they? Which is, which is a shame for Frank because he's a, he's a fine manager. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? No, not at all. Just... Just a nice uh, end of year smile. A little, little, little bit of fun in the studio. Happy New Year, I think it's, it's just, it's difficult, isn't it? Kind of uh, taking swings and pot shots at other managers when we are close to them as we are. Like, you know, <laughs> we're only one point ahead, albeit with a game in hand. January is shaping up to be a very, very important month, I think. Um, isn't it always, though? <laughs> well, yes. I feel like a yes. lot of the concerns about January just stem from the way the last window ended as well, because I think to an extent it was fairly successful. I know... He's obviously been injured a lot, but there's nothing you can do about it. But Sinistera looked really good. I think people were generally really pleased with Adams and Aronson. So it was kind of looking all right until we got into that weird bit where we nearly, we tried to sign Gakpo and Dieng and then accidentally sold Dan James. And the way it finished was a complete farce. And then Bamford's 
continuing injury problems have just added to that. But it feels like we completely snatched defeat from the jaws of victory with that transfer window. I thought it was quite interesting as well that um, in Angus Kinnear's programme notes last night, and these are the last notes before the window opens, there was no mention of it at all. And that very much tallied with what Marsh said at his press conference a week or so back of, you know, I'm going to try this window to say nothing about signings and nothing about transfers. And presumably until the point where they, they come through the door. But yeah, I mean, over the next month, Newcastle obviously at the weekend, but it's, and then there'll be Cardiff in the FA Cup as well. But in the league, it's West Ham, it's Philly away, it's Brentford at home, it's um, it's Forest away. There need to be points from those games, definitely. Definitely. With that in mind, we can't afford to wait until late in the window either, can we? Because I think we've, part of the frustration in the past as well is that we feel like, I guess maybe to try and get better value out of it, but we leave it and leave it and leave it and, t- and take it right to the wire. And then you end either getting nobody or getting someone you didn't necessarily want in the first place, by which point you're, you know, another four or five games into the season. I never mind a club waiting till late in the window if they deliver something really good. If you deliver something really good, then it can be worthwhile. I think what we've probably seen too often... Well, I was going to say, our really good moves have ended up at AC Milan and Liverpool, respectively. Yeah, and you get late into the window thinking something will come, something will come, and then what you're hoping will come doesn't, and it leaves you you in, in a certain amount of difficulty. I mean, I'm just looking back at Newcastle getting um, Guimaraes on the 30th of January last year. That, that was pretty good. That's pretty much worth waiting until um, until late on to, to do it. But you kind of, you, you've got to make sure it happens. In terms of um, probably being a bit quieter about the transfers, as much as we kind of thirst for information, and it's, you know, I mean, so much of the football economy, the football fan economy is built on it, isn't it? You think about the noise that's generated on Twitter around transfers. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they're staying quiet. I think it's for the best. Well, I don't think making noise about it is any use anyway, unless you sign the players that you're talking about about signing. I think more than De Ketelaar, actually, Gakpo's become the example, hasn't he, of how much worth there is in a player who you don't actually have. You know, it's it's great going for him. It's great looking like you're trying to get him. It's great having him on your list. But if he ends up at Liverpool, then what use... Is he to you? Absolutely none. I mean, it's good. It's good though that they're they're identifying the talents, and you seem like they're they trying to get Josko Gvardiol as well. Yeah, was yeah, no. and, he, and he's one of the hottest properties in you know European football in terms yeah. of, of defensive players. Uh, so they're looking in the right areas, but it's getting the deals done, isn't it? That's the problem, and that's probably where the next level needs to come in terms well, of ownership and transfers. That's probably where, rather than focusing on the methods of recruitment, you need to focus more on the finance. You know, if you go for a Gakpo you've clearly worked out that he's a really good footballer and, and that you want to you want to have him. The only way to get him is to is to financially put the package together that, that lets you do it, unless he just doesn't want to come, you know, unless he says, look, I don't, I don't want Leeds, I don't want Southampton, this, that, and the other. I want to go to Champions League club in England or, you know, I think Real Madrid were quite keen as well. You know, if he says that, there's nothing you can do and there's probably no amount of money you can you can throw at him. But if there's a price and the price is there to be paid, then that's the thing, isn't it? And, had Leeds got that done, that would have been a cracking signing. But they didn't. So it, it becomes a, a moot discussion. And as I say, the fact that you recognised him as a good player doesn't mean a great deal in the same that it doesn't with Guardiola because Guardiola is going to end up somewhere else. Have we got any names in the mix then for a potential forward who we might even get over the line this time? Well, somebody um, from the Southampton end was back on to me last week about Shea Adams who feels like it's going to be <laughs> the um, Adama... So, I mean, look, I, I actually... Quite, Adams, Traore. I actually yeah, quite like, I, I do like 
Shea Adams is a player. He's, he's a good player. I want us to um, sign all three of those players just to stop it, it just it, to make the rumours go away. We can sign if, Dan James again. It does feel <laughs> as if the Traore, um, the Traore rumour has to develop again at some point, doesn't it? Because it's been every every single window, really. But it's it's very, very quiet on the, the forward front, which I, I wouldn't be fair for me to say that that means they're not doing anything. It's just that there isn't much in the ether at the moment about which way it's going to go. That fills me with optimism, Phil. <laughs> well, wait and see. I mean, let's um, if we're going to have a massive fight about this, let's wait until February the first. Yeah, of, you know, when, when the window closes. That's the thing, isn't at, it? At Phil Hay underscore, if you want to ask him for <laughs> updates on, a, on an hourly basis. Any news, Phil? Um, how do we close out twenty twenty two then? St James's Park. Let's return to that. Michael, <laughs> defeating him. <laughs> you gave the stat earlier. Um, I, I know he's he's not here to defend himself, but I think I think it's only fair that we mention that after that, uh, the game at Ellen Road where Newcastle did beat us. Moscow claimed confidently after that Newcastle wouldn't win another game <laughs> and uh, they've they've got 70 points he, he also declared as well that um, what's the kid at Fulham called the striker Mitrovic oh yeah well, can't score in the Premier League <laughs> that was, uh, that was uh, one of his big ones this season he, to give Moscow his due is by no means the only person who's been saying that about Mitrovic Mitrovic has definitely decided to turn it on this year home crowd extra time to rest stronger team Better individual players in certain positions. I think it's, I think it's probably going Newcastle's way. This and that, way. and for that, that for all those reasons is the it's why you're going to go for an away win. Well, why yeah. not finish out the year with one? We've yeah. had a few. Let's we say, let's say few. Leeds win that and then lose to West Ham. Feels very Leedsy. Feels very this season. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I don't think anyone anywhere was calling Leeds at Anfield. I don't think we expected them to beat Chelsea. I don't think we necessarily expected them to play as well as they did against Arsenal. I, I, that's almost why last night was a little bit of a concern because I still think City are the best team in the division, despite what the table says. I still think they are. Starting 11 but was 500 million quid last night. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely crazy. And then you have Phillips on the bench who they don't even need to use. You, Foden, who's going to be an 80 million, 100 million pound footballer. These I know. The, the, the kind of exchange of Grealish for Foden, you do just sit there. Yeah, you just kind of, yeah. I, I laughed. I just like, well, what can you do? It's like a game of FIFA that you've been playing for 15 years and little by little you've amassed, you know, 30 of the best players in the world and you just interchange them. I was going to say, on, on FIFA, you can grant a billion pounds to, you know, if you, t- if you start a career, give a billion pounds to a football team. And my lad's done it. He's gone in as Man City because they're essentially the best team in the country, mm-hmm. given them the billion, and then you, you just hoover up all the players that you <laughs> want to play. And you start, you're getting rid of the likes, <laughs> like like Foden and the, and the really good players just because they're not, you know, like, like Grealish always gets sold because he's not quite as good as the other ones you can bring in. Just bringing in Mbappe. It feels like a little bit like they're doing that in real life, doesn't it? They, the Leeds have competed better though against, I don't know, the top six sides is the, the way to put it because Chelsea are eighth. But they've competed better against some of the sides that you expect to be at that end of the division uh, than they did against City last night. I, I felt like it was a bit of a mismatch yesterday wasn't really a game that looked like Leeds were going to going to make a dent in. And for as good as Newcastle have been, they aren't Man City. You look through their, no. you look through their squad and they're, they're likely starting eleven, and they're not all brilliant players. They are not they are not full of world class players in the same way as Man City. They have, they have a few, and someone like Almiron who's obviously in brilliant form. But they can be got at. Yeah. I think in a but way they, in a way that I didn't ever feel we could with Man City. I think we got at Arsenal. Yeah, a lot genuinely. But they but they've lost one game. Newcastle, they've conceded 11 goals in 16 matches. At the bottom line is, you have to play very, very well to get anything from Newcastle. You don't have to be sensational, but you've got to play well. Who's uh, current striker for RB Salzburg? Isn't that a name we can chuck in the mix? Oh, go on, just do it for I'll, fun. You, don't, you don't even need to do... Why stick at Salzburg? Just all the RBs. Yeah, very there, true. There are a few to go, aren't there? Uh, well, there are links um, 
to Lorient striker uh, Terran Moffy, I think it's pronounced today in the press. He's a striker. Southampton being linked in this current window, so the Shea Adams dream could yet materialise. <laughs> would you? I mean, like, like, I mean, I am being facetious, of course, but um, would you take Shea Adams if it meant having a, have, a warm body up front? I'd have taken him last January. Yeah, I think I, 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 I don't think it's a signing that necessarily makes you progress massively as a team and I don't think it's a signing that points to a bigger picture of what you're building but maybe there have been occasions in the past couple of years where Leeds have avoided doing the simpler things when the simpler things might have helped I get that you don't want to waste money and you have to be careful about what you spend and who you spend it on and what value you're going to get from them further down the line but also you have to kind of look a little bit at the at the here and now that I also say with them she Adams it's not as if he's the only striker out there there's a world of, of strikers and they need to sign one of them they need to sign a good one he just doesn't really score many goals does he perfect which I think which I, <laughs> I think we have to address as being a bit of an issue for him like looking looking at his Premier League record yeah he's not got more than nine goals in his four seasons I, I think we should maybe go for someone a bit better we can fix yeah but is there genuinely the money available to get that player who gets 15 in a season because they are pricey but I suppose if you're looking at like last season the last couple of seasons he's got 4 and 7 if Joe Gallart played a full season does he get 4 or 7 goals he probably does are you talking about the pathway I'm talking about the pathway, <laughs> talking about the pathway. <laughs> no I'm talking about the need to recruit at a level that I want, you ideally want to recruit someone who is your best striker I wouldn't be against doing that they're not going to do that though are they probably. I, th- I, I think that's the point they've reached now where the the next you you feel as if the next number nine they do, you want to be a really, really serious, or, or next forward um, who's going to play in that area, you want to be a really, really serious, serious hit. In the way that Gakpo would have been, without a doubt. But as I say, I'm loath to talk too much about Gakpo because it definitely ain't happening now. And DePaul, Rodrigo DePaul is a World Cup winner. I'm not you even had, asked you, you about that. You had to go there, didn't yeah. you? you had to go there. Um, let's wrap it up then and we'll head off for the end of the year. We'll be back in, in 2023. Feels like a long time away. And the window will be open by the time we get uh, back into the studio, Phil. On Monday morning. Something like that. Something like that. Yes. Um, the Boxing Day sale currently on, by the way, for The Athletic. And that's running until New Year's Day. And it's pound a month for your first 12 months. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod for that. Uh, well, Happy New Year. Then chaps will um, we'll reassem- we'll reassemble next year. And the show returns to its twice weekly slots as well um, when we get round to that. And the start of the glorious FA Cup run. Yes, and as ever, thanks to everybody who's listened this year. I always appreciate your company. The Phil Hay Show.